Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. Before we get to Revelation 22, I want to talk to you about one of the most important decisions ever made in history. It was the decision about what books would be in our Bible. The question is, how did we get this book? How did we get the Bible? How did the words breathed out by God make its way from the human authors into this one book we hold today? 66 books bound together in one cover. But how did anybody ever decide, hey, this book is in and this book is out? How did anybody make that decision? How do we know that the Bible that we hold on to, the Bible that we have in our hands is no less and no more than the Word of God? Are these 66 books God's final word? Self-professed, educated men from some of the most liberal schools out there today, schools like Harvard, Chicago Theological Seminary, Union Theological Seminary, they have the group known as the Jesus Seminar. Still exists, still out there speaking in different churches. It started in the 1970s with the professed goal of examining the Gospels to discover who Jesus was and what he truly said. The individuals that made up this group, here's their starting point. They deny the inspiration, the authority, and the inerrancy of the Bible. So do you think they're fair? I don't think so. Their agenda is basically to attack the Bible. That's what they're about. They start with the presupposition that the Gospels are filled with errors. They reject the miracles of Christ. These self-professed experts go through the Gospels and try to determine what Jesus really said and what Jesus really taught. But here's the problem. If you're approaching the Scriptures this way, not believing in the deity of Christ, not believing in the resurrection of Christ, or the substitutionary atonement and death of Christ, or the inspiration of Scripture, you're kind of biased going in. After much debate, they voted. Think of that. Arrogant men voting on the Word of God. They discounted about 80% of what the New Testament records from Jesus. Now, Reader's Digest, young people, if you don't know what Reader's Digest is, think about printed internet reading for the bathroom. That's about all I can tell you, okay? <laughs> printed internet reading for the bathroom, in 1982, they published a condensed version of the Bible. They felt that the Bible needed to be shorter. They felt that it needed to flow better. They started with the revised standard version of the Bible. They had seven editors, and they worked for three years. Now, the revised standard version of the Bible started out at about 1,400 pages. Reader's Digest got it down to about 800. Only taking out 600 pages. 
In the beginning, there were 850,000 words. Three years later, they got it down by 40%, just to 510,000 words. They got the Old Testament down by 50%. Who wants to read the Old Testament, I guess? And the New Testament down by 25%. None of the words of Christ were changed. They, they were excited about that. None of the words of Christ were changed, but hey, only about 10% were deleted. When men sit in judgment of the word of God, you can better be sure that these men have a bias. Whatever offends you, leave it out. That's the mindset. It's why a group of atheists had a contest to rewrite the Ten Commandments. Now, of course, which news network carried this story? CNN. <laughs> CNN, of course. Communist network. But what this group of atheists did is they said, we're going to have a contest to try to rewrite the Ten Commandments. CNN, of course, reported on it, and they said this. What if instead of climbing Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God, Moses had turned to the Israelites and asked the question, hey, what do you guys think we should do? And on their list, they came up with things that were pretty sad, disgusting things like this. God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life or that there is no right way to live. I hope to elevate your view of the scriptures this morning. The 39 books of the Old Testament record the history from the time of Adam, the creation of the world, right up until about 400 B.C., under the writings of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the last three prophets that we have in the Old Testament. Now, the history, if you've taken the time to study the Bible, the history is amazingly accurate. Our Old Testament was written over a period of about a thousand years, but it's, it's remarkably unified. It includes the history back to the time of creation, probably around 4,000 B.C., now, the flood happened before 2500 B.C. We know this. We know this for a specific reason, because the Egyptians were amazing at keeping calendars. And they said that the pyramids were built around 2500 B.C. And the pyramids have no evidence that they were ever impacted by a flood. But underneath them, where they stand, guess what they found? There's fossil evidence of a flood. Moses took the people out of Egypt around 1446 B.C. And when the Old Testament was closed with the prophetic words of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, God didn't speak for about 400 years. It was quiet. It was silent, which is why it's called the silent years between the Old and New Testaments. No prophecies were given. There were men that were writing some documents during this time, but they were not writing scripture until we get to the New Testament. So here's the part you need to understand. There really never was any debate about the 39 books that make up our Old Testament. The 39 books, including the law spoken by Moses, the prophetical and historical books, the wisdom books, they were accepted as the word of God by the church. Now, if you don't believe that, here's this. Jesus himself quoted in the New Testament 24 of the Old Testament books. So I think he believed in those. And 36 of the 39 books are mentioned throughout the New Testament. 
The human men inspired by God to write the New Testament had a clear understanding of what was considered to be Scripture. Jesus referred to the Old Testament as Scripture. Paul referred to the words of Jesus as Scripture. Peter refers to the words of Paul as Scripture. Jude refers to the writings of Peter as Scripture. They were pointing to one another as writing the very words of God. So don't let some movie or some documentary made my unregenerate men tell you otherwise that the Bible is not the Word of God. There was very little debate in the early church as to which books in our New Testament were Scripture that were communicated by God and from God. There was widespread agreement about most of the books that we have in the New Testament. And it was at the Council of Carthage in 397 AD that a group of church fathers and scholars, they came together and they used a very strict criteria to determine which books written since the Old Testament should be in the New Testament canon. Now we use that word canon, which simply means measuring or rule. That's all it means. But I want you to notice carefully and to understand that this council, here's a point that you need to get, this council did not declare the books of the Bible to be canon. They were canon already. They were already scripture. They didn't decide and grant authority to these books. These scriptures were authoritative the moment God spoke the words from his mouth. You see, when Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel, when did it become an artistic masterpiece? Did it become a masterpiece the minute it was painted? Or did it become a masterpiece later on once people saw it? Well, of course, it was a masterpiece the moment it was painted. It just took people a while to recognize how beautiful it was. And the moment that God spoke the scriptures to men through the Holy Spirit, these words were canon. They were authoritative. They were the very word of God written down. The councils that followed later simply needed to discover it for themselves. It takes our brains a while to catch up with God. It always does. The Council of Carthage had a very specific criteria to discover for themselves which books were inspired by God. They weren't just winging it. They had a criteria. The first criterion was apostolic or prophetic authorship. A book accepted into the Old or New Testament written by an apostle or a prophet of God. And if it wasn't written by an apostle or prophet of God, then what do you do? Well, then it had to be written by someone that was closely associated with an apostle or prophet. Think of someone like Jude or, or maybe even think of someone like Mark. They looked at the acceptance and circulation in the early church and if the early church commonly used the book, that was another indicator. If the early church was receiving the books as the inspired word of God. Now, this is the reason why. See, there's, there's a thought process behind this. This is the reason why we know some of the other pseudo-gospels that have arisen after the New Testament was written were rejected because they didn't have a widespread audience in the church. They weren't being used by the early church. They also looked at internal consistency. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the book had to have a theological consistency with what was already understood to be canon. It, it agreed with what was widely accepted as the word and works of Jesus, or the book itself was confirmed by Christ or confirmed by a prophet or confirmed by an apostle. 
And the text had to reflect historical accuracy. You see, some of the problems with the other Gospels that have arisen, that have cropped up in recent years, they were written too late. We know that. Historically, they were written too late. And they contain many, many errors with what we know from history during the time and life of Jesus in the early church. And you can just tell by looking at some of these books and early writings that didn't make it into what we consider the New Testament. Because many of these books, you look at them and they start promoting a social agenda. See, that's nothing new. They were promoting social agendas back then. And they were promoting political agendas back then. Rather than lifting up the person and name of Jesus Christ. And so that's a big difference when you look at these scriptures and other books. The books that we have, there was clear evidence that these books held credible authority. Credible authority of the life of Jesus and the growth of the early church. So what about books that were excluded? What do we do with that? What about books that were excluded? Books like the Gospel of Mary. Now, that was pretty famous a few years back because Dan Brown highlighted the Gospel of Mary in the Da Vinci Code. Or the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas. What do you do with those books? Well, these writings historically failed miserably, miserably at the criteria established They were written far too late. They couldn't have been written back in the times of Jesus or the early church. Most of them were not written until 150 or 200 A.D., much too late to be written by Mary, Judas, or Thomas, telling us right there that they cannot, they cannot be true. And some of them, you can just tell by reading them that they have an agenda, they have a a motive behind them. The Gospel of Mary, for example, is a very feminized gospel. It's obvious if if you just read it, take two seconds to read it, it's obvious it was put out by a group that was trying to restore greater credibility to women. And there are far too many direct contradictions with the gospels that we consider scripture with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We can be sure that what we have today, our 66 books, is the inspired word of God. So why do Catholic Bibles, let's ask this before we move on, why do Catholic Bibles have 46 Old Testament books instead of 39? Have you ever wondered, where did those extra books come from? And the answer is that it goes back to those silent years. Remember, we talked about these silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The time of silence after the last of the Old Testament prophets. Now, there were rabbis and there were teachers living at that time when God wasn't speaking officially to Israel. And they were recording the history of the Jewish people. And they were recording the longing of the people of Israel for their Messiah to come back. The people expected that the Messiah would come soon. But not even the Jews at that time gave those writings the same authority as scripture. In fact, neither did Jesus, nor did any of the other New Testament writers. And even Jerome, when he made his Latin version of the Bible in 405 AD, he included the extra books, but he didn't list them as the authoritative scripture. They were included as books that were read in the church. They're interesting, but they were not considered scripture. They were not at the level of scripture. They were not considered inspired by God. But then what happened about a thousand years go by at the time of the Protestant Reformation, the reformers saw some problems with these books 
in the extra books. And they saw some theological problems and argued that they should not be considered scripture. And so then in the Counter-Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent in 1546 made an official declaration for the first time that these extra books, known to us as the Apocrypha, were now to be considered as being equal with the scriptures that we have today. In the original manuscripts, that's a key point. If you miss that point, you're missing the whole lesson. In the original manuscripts, every jot and every tittle, every word, every letter that was God-breathed, God has preserved his word for you, Christian. You should take great comfort from that. You should take great hope and joy from that. What we hold in our hands, the 66 books that we treasure, we can trust those works of having gone through incredible, incredible scrutiny, have come out on the other side as the timeless and tested word of God, which is what John's about to tell us about the book of Revelation. We're talking about this for a reason. So here we go. Revelation 22. Join me if you would. And we start with verse six. Notice what he says. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. These words are faithful and true. Now the apostle Paul, he told Timothy that in the latter days there would be a widespread rejection of truth. Count on it, he said. Basically, it's coming. There's going to be a rejection of truth in the latter days. And this is why in 1 Timothy 4, Paul wrote, he says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some are going to depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And again, over in 2 Timothy 4, he said, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. See, Revelation 22 is about to sing the same tune. It's about to tell us the same thing telling us that what we need is the objective, certified, reliable truth that can only come from God written down in his word. Because Christian, when you are armed with the word of God, when you are armed with confidence in his scriptures, you can face anything in this fallen world with greater security, deeper faith, and a stronger courage. And in verse 6 of Revelation John had been staring there breathless at the profound brilliance and magnitude of the vision of our eternal home. John needed to hear that these words are faithful and true. The description of the new Jerusalem can be trusted, he's saying. So John gave a footnote telling us that the Lord God sent his angel to show his servants the things which must soon take place. And then he reiterated the promise of blessing to the believer who heeds the warnings of the book, this book, in light of the soon return of Christ. Now, if you're tracking with me in verse 7, it seems that this in verse 7 is the angel quoting Christ. 
Either that or the Lord himself just broke in. He just broke in at this point to remind his church that he's coming back soon. See, this is here to tell us that we are to believe what is faithful and true. We're constantly bombarded. As soon as we leave this place, our phones are going to be bombarded. Our lives are going to be bombarded with satanic garbage and the lies of a satanic culture designed intentionally to take us away from Jesus Christ. Everything out there is designed to take us away from Christ. The wise believer guards his mind, holding on to the precious word of God as truth. Second, we look ahead to what is predicted. We have a hope today because we have a certain future. We have an absolutely certain future. We live in a constant state of readiness, living for and looking for the return of Christ. We have a responsibility as the redeemed child of God to live out and be obedient to the truth. See, what I'm telling you is this. God intends for you to understand this book. God intends for you, Christian, to read this book. God intends for you to grow from this book. You can thumb your nose at him if you want, but he intends for you to dig into this book, learn it, and grow from it. The final book of the Bible, the most neglected and most misunderstood book, gives us a promise, a blessing. And the reason is simple. It is because the book of Revelation honors and exalts Jesus Christ. At the end of 1901, I love these guys so much. The Wright brothers, they were frustrated by the flight tests of their gliders. The aircraft were being flown up to 300 feet in a single glide, but the aircraft weren't doing as well as they predicted. They, they weren't getting as much success as they wanted using the design methods that they had. But when they flew their plane in 1903, they had a different result. They knew with confidence that this thing was going to take off. But here's the question. How did they know? After building and testing a small wind tunnel, yes, they did that. The Wright brothers completed a larger, more sophisticated wind tunnel in October of 1901. The wind tunnel was pretty basic, but it consisted of a simple wooden box with a square glass window on top so they could watch their models during the testing. Then they had a fan that was belted to a one horsepower engine hooked up to this thing, and it provided airflow of about 30 miles an hour. That's not too bad for back then. They used the wind tunnel to carry out aerodynamic research that proved essential in designing their 1903 plane. Now, here's the point. God has given you, Christian, the same exact thing. You see, this is what the entire Bible, the whole Word of God is for, especially books like the book of Proverbs. See, we can explore real-life situations within the reality of Scripture and know how it's going to turn out. We can know in advance what's going to fly and what is going to crash. Biblical wisdom tells us what life will be successful in the eyes of God and what is going to crash and burn. So pick up our text with verse 8. Watch what John says. He says, Now I, John, saw and heard these things. 
And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book. What? Worship God. Don't miss the first words of verse eight. I, John, saw and heard these things. The last living apostle of Jesus Christ. The last living apostle of Jesus Christ is putting his stamp on this. He's putting his approval on this and saying, this is what God has revealed. John put his entire reputation, his entire ministry on the line. Everything he saw was true. Everything he heard was true. And so then John gets a little carried away and he fell down to worship the angel. Now, this angel was a servant of God, just like John, just like the other prophets. John made the same mistake. It's amazing to me he did, but he made the same mistake back in chapter 19. But I think there's a huge warning for us as the church here. There is a warning for us to be careful that we don't worship the wrong things. See, we get caught up in worshiping all of the wrong things and forget to worship the one, the one who deserves it. So the angel turns John's attention back to God and to God alone, which is why verse 9 ends by saying, worship God, worship God only because God is above all his creation, even the angels. And in verses 10 and 11, the angel takes John back to the word of God. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Don't seal up the words of this book. Instead, why? Proclaim them. Proclaim these words because the time of the end is at hand. Because if you go back to this idea of a scroll having a seal on it, it would mean that it was closed. If you put the seal on the scroll, it's closed, it's sealed. But John was told the prophecy contained in this book needed to stay open because it needed to be proclaimed, it needed to be told. The message of Revelation was intended to be understood by God's people. And he says that the time is at hand. The church age is the last dispensation of time before the rapture before the tribulation, before the events of the prophecy of the book. And if you're having a hard time figuring out verse 11, where the angel tells John, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. The idea is this. It's a somber warning. If you reject the message and revelation of Jesus Christ, if you reject the prophecies of this book, then God has nothing more to say to you. Just see what happens. Keep rolling in the mud. If you're going to reject God until the end, then you'll meet God face to face in the end. And you'll be judged by Christ, the very one you rejected. If you're reconciled to God by faith, continue to walk in the holiness of Jesus Christ. Spread that gospel seed wide, but know that some people are never, ever going to be reconciled to God by faith. And look to the reward and glory. And know, Christian, that this book was meant to be read. It was meant to be studied. It was meant to be understood. Not sitting there in a closet collecting dust. Nobody's impressed because you own a Bible. Read it. Read it. If the prophecies of this book don't stir your soul, 
and lead you to walk with Jesus Christ, God is saying, that's on you. And as the family of God and the body of Christ, we're to keep our eternal home at the center of our hope, letting its truth purify us as we await our Savior. In 2009, the Gallery of Modern Art, that's a scary place to be right there, the Gallery of Modern Art, this modern art museum in, in Glasgow, Scotland, hosted an exhibit called Made in God's Image. What could go wrong? It featured a simple open Bible, and next to the Bible was a container of pens and a sign which read, if you've been excluded from the Bible, please write your way back into it. Now, this mindset is troubling for a whole host of reasons, because it makes us the subject of the Bible. But even more disturbing is the vile responses of the people who wrote in this Bible, people who wrote lewd and angry comments. They're angry at God, so they desecrated the Bible. One person wrote, this is all sexist pish. That's a word they have, a word that just means deep disdain. So disregard it all. Another wrote on the first page of Genesis, I am bi, female, and proud. I want no God who is disappointed in this. Others have taken the opportunity to change verses, including Genesis 1-1, to try to prove that by somehow writing on God's word that everything about the Bible and God himself is man-made. See, this is how broken, this is how sad and lawless our society has become. Desecration of the scriptures is now called art. And this is the mindset of those who reject Jesus Christ. They stand condemned until they are judged by the Holy Creator. See, the Bible stands for everything that these people don't. The Bible stands for hope. The Bible stands for creation. The Bible stands for regeneration. Like a legal document with the signature of several witnesses, Christ now jumps in here and testifies and provides his witness. Verse 12. And behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And Jesus said, I'm coming quickly. But in case you're wondering, if you're sitting here saying, hey, Jesus, it's been 2000 years. How quickly is this coming? You need to know that the wording is not what you're thinking. You should know that quickly isn't about how soon he will come, but how sudden it will happen when it does come. And rewards for the believer in Christ at the judgment seat, they are meant to motivate us. They are meant to motivate us to live for Christ now. Christ wants you to think about the fact that every day you squander away is another day that could be used for his glory. Salvation is by grace. Absolutely. Rewards are according to works. Because God gives us our salvation, but he even rewards us for our works, even though he's the one who empowers us and enables us to do them. You know, picture a family where the father's been gone for weeks and the kids have been told that if they're faithful to their chores, their work, they're going to be rewarded with gifts. And so one night the phone rings and it's the father with the words on the other end that says, I'm coming home and I've kept my word. Have you kept yours? See, that's what the Lord is telling us in Revelation. He's coming back. He's awaiting to reward those who are faithful to him. And then the Lord tells us in verse 13, 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Now the Alpha and the Omega the first and last of the Greek alphabet letters, because in the alphabet, the letters, what do letters do? Letters communicate knowledge. They communicate knowledge. Jesus Christ himself is the source of all that is true from beginning to end. His people that belong to him by faith will have the right to the tree of life and will be able to come into the new Jerusalem for all eternity. But those cast into the lake of fire, dogs meaning people of low character, morally impure, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral murderers, the idolaters, those still dead in their sins will never enter into the holy city of God because they'll be sealed in the lake of fire for all eternity. See, the Bible's telling us that those who reject Jesus Christ will never be a part of the new heaven or the new earth. There will be no second chances. They'll be excluded forever. And then we read in verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears say, come and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Lord tells us in verse 16, I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Like a king putting his royal seal on an official document, Jesus ties his reputation, his entire reputation as the ministry of the son of David to the prophecies of this book. The words of revelation are absolutely faithful and they are true because they are given to us by the one who is faithful and true. And what we are looking at are the very last words breathed by God, his final words to the church before the return of Jesus Christ. So first in verse 17, we have an invitation of the gospel of Christ by the spirit and the bride. The church indwelt by the spirit has been sent to bring the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. For those who thirst for God, the offer of living water that can only be provided by God is given. It is free. It is not something that you can earn. God's eternal salvation is a gift. It is free. It is freely given to whoever will come by faith in the death and resurrection of Christ as God's provision for taking the penalty of sin on your behalf so that you may have eternal life. Only Jesus Christ can quench that deepest, deepest thirst and needs of the human heart. Very important words starting in verse 18. Very important. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. No book in the Bible has been more attacked than the book of Revelation. Sad but true. God says, don't mess around with it. Don't fool around with it. Don't add to it. Don't leave anything out. 
The words before us in Revelation are specifically about this book. They're specifically about the book of Revelation. But this theme, in case you're wondering, is all throughout the Bible. So don't mess with any of the word of God. Proverbs 30 warns us this. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. We see it again in places like Deuteronomy 4.2, where Moses told the people this, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. God takes this serious. God has some strong things to say about the person who dares to tamper with the scriptures. You don't add to it. You don't take away from it. And if you do, the text says, God will take away your part from the book of life, your part in the new Jerusalem and the eternal life described in this book. Now, let's be careful. Let's be very careful with what we're saying here. This text is not about a child of God by faith losing their salvation. You cannot lose your salvation if you're truly reconciled to God by faith. But to intentionally tamper with the word of God is an outward sign that you don't have faith. It's an outward sign that you are living in unbelief, that you deny the sufficiency of Scripture. And to reject the word of God is to reject God himself. You see, the point here is that the child of God should recognize that this is the word of God. And it's meant to be studied. It's meant to be cherished. I don't understand Christians who don't cherish the word of God. It's meant to be applied. It's meant to be loved by God's people. And I hope this elevates your view of the word of God. Love it, respect it, read it, but don't you dare tamper with it. Any child of God that dares to tamper with the word of God should remember that God knows how to chasten his own. He absolutely does. And even though your eternal life is secure in Christ, you can miss out on some great rewards. You can absolutely miss out in eternity on the rewards promised to those who are faithful. God will not have his word tampered with. God guards it with a terrible and strong warning. I mentioned this guy to you before. His name was Kim Peek. He was the guy who inspired the 1988 film Rain Man, about an autistic savant with outstanding mathematical skills. Now, Peek was what was considered a mega savant. This guy had some gifts. He was pretty smart. He was an expert in at least 15 subjects, including history, sports, space, music, geography. He had a total recall, this is so impressive, of 9,000 books. And each of his eyes, this is my favorite part, each of his eyes could read a separate page. How handy would this be? Each of his eyes could read a separate page at the same time, absorbing every single word. What might take you, that's impressive, what might take you three minutes to read, he could read in 10 seconds and never forget. He once went to a performance of Shakespeare's play, Twelfth Night, but as the play was ending, Peek stood up and said out loud, you've got to stop it. You've got to stop it. You've got to stop it, stop it, stop it. Because it turned out that the actor had skipped the second to the last verse of the play. And the actor, he then apologized right away. And he said, these verses are so much alike that I didn't think it would matter. And Peek responded and said, it mattered to William Shakespeare, 
and it should matter to you. The word of God, even more so. The word of God, even more so. So what does this all matter to us? Does the canon of scripture have any bearing on how we live? Let me give you three words that I want you to take home with you. The first is submission. See, if the scriptures are canon, if the scriptures are canon, if they have authority, the moment they were spoken in the original language by God, then that means something. Then that means I don't sit in judgment of the word of God. The Bible has authority over me and I'm to live my life in submission to it. See, some people live as if the Bible is under them. A lot of Christians live like this. And they pick and choose what they want to believe. But this is dangerous. This is a dangerous way to live. This is exactly what a man by the name of Marcion did around 150 AD. He was an interesting dude from church history. He said that he didn't like the God of the Old Testament. A lot of people have said that. They didn't like the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is angry. So the Old Testament can't be scripture. And he said that Paul was too strict. So take out some of his writings. Same with the writings of Jesus and some of the Gospels. Marcion, he whittled down that Bible. He got that thing so down. He whittled down the Bible to Luke and 10 letters from Paul because there was something in each of the other books that he didn't agree with. Who would ever do that? Who would ever do that? But I wonder in application, are we doing that in how we live and the things that we live out in our faith. Let me give you a couple examples. I know that Jesus said this in Matthew 6. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you live this? Because I don't know who gives what. I don't want to know. I never want to know. But I know this. Our church budget does not match the number of people that come here and profess faith in Jesus Christ and his word. So something's wrong. Our church budget tells me that a good part of this church doesn't trust the Bible at all when it comes to giving. That's what it tells me. That these verses of the Bible just do not apply to you because of your financial situation. Always thinking that someone else will carry the load for now. But the problem is, friend, it's only a handful of people carrying the load. And it means that the work of Jesus Christ is suffering. It breaks my heart. If you think I'm looking for a paycheck, you are wrong. You don't know me. That's not what this is about. I minister for hardly anything for a long time because I love Jesus Christ. It saddens me when the work of Christ suffers because God's people are disobedient to the scriptures. How about another subject? Do we believe the Bible? How about the book of James? Should we take James 5, 9 from our Bibles? This one hits me harder. This one hits me. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. James was talking to the church. Don't grumble. I'm like an old man that grumbles around the house. Sunday nights, Monday mornings, poor Angie, poor Angie. I grumble. Don't grumble. 
And we don't, unless we don't like something in the church. <laughs> then we grumble. Then we grumble. Now, we would never rip any of these pages out of our Bible. But, oh, we're so good at ignoring them when we want to. If the Bible is the word of God, then I live under it. And it has authority over me. I don't have authority over it. I believe in my heart of hearts. If I didn't, I wouldn't be here. Trust me. There's better things to do. Fishing season's coming soon. I believe the Bible is the word of God. And it has the right to command our beliefs in every single action we live. And here is the promise to you, Christian. If you live in submission to the word of God, in your finances, in your relationships, in your purity, in your lives, you will discover the beautiful privilege of walking in fellowship with the Savior. There's a reward there for the faithful child of God. When we surrender to the word of God and say something like this, we say, Lord, this is a tough text, like don't grumble. This is a tough text for me right now, but I will submit to it by your strength in me. Then we start to discover everything that God has for us in our lives. Second word I'm going to give you is stewardship. I'm not really worried about anybody here today going home and writing another gospel. But it's possible that we can subtract and add to the scripture through misinterpreting it and misapplication. 2 Timothy 2.15, a very sobering passage, a passage that should humble you. It says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. What does this Bible text tell me? It tells me that it is more than possible for me when I open my Bible to incorrectly handle the word of God. And it tells me that it's a terrible thing to do. And I find that when people mishandle the word of God, they end up in one of two places. Either they become complete legalists or they end up Weak in the other direction. Both are weak. They end up weak in the other direction, never letting the word of God impact them or change their lives. If you've been a Christian a long time and the word of God isn't changing your life, something's wrong. So be careful as you interpret. Learn to handle the word of God accurately. Study to show yourself approved unto God. And the last word I want to give you is substitution. See, every day we as Christians, as I said, are bombarded with messages that all claim to be true. And if we're not careful, we take on some of these messages and we substitute them for the truth of God's word. And it's easy to do. So if we're not careful, we're liable to read C.S. Lewis or Beth Moore, ladies, and love them more than we love the scriptures that they were writing about. And that's a trap all in itself. See, if we're not careful, we'll get our information about the Bible from a documentary on TV rather than be students and learn the Bible ourselves. And all of these little substitutes, all of these substitutes can mess us up, even if they're intended for good. So go to the scriptures, submit to the scriptures, be a good steward with it, and be careful of substitution. Dan, you know this guy, Emmett Smith. He was great to watch run. I mean, he was unbelievable. He was one of the greatest running backs in the NFL. There was 11 seasons where he rushed over 1,000 yards, and it was impressive. And when Smith was a high school freshman, he constantly was dropping the ball, just constantly fumbling the ball. One day, his coach came up to him and said, and he screamed at him. He got in his face, and he said this, you'll never be a good running back 
unless you learn to hold on to the ball. And spiritual growth, Christians, hear me, and maturity comes from holding tightly onto the scriptures. You can't grow without the word of God. You cannot grow and run in your faith if you do not hold on to the scriptures. And that scripture was carefully guarded and preserved for us. So what we have, friends, is the word of God. Hold tightly to it. Spurgeon once said this. He said, a Bible that is falling apart is probably owned by someone who isn't. Dietrich Bonhoeffer likewise said, because I'm a Christian, I want you to hear what he said. He said, because I'm a Christian, therefore, every day in which I do not penetrate more deeply into the knowledge of God's word and Holy Scripture is a lost day for me. I can only move forward with certainty upon the firm ground of the word of God. The lack of the knowledge of scriptures and the lack of obedience to the scriptures is the greatest source of weakness in this church and in every church. But I want to live differently, and I hope you do too. I want the word of God to take up residence inside of me to form in me the likeness of Jesus Christ. Revelation ends with a benediction, and I can think of no better way than to end our study in Revelation in this great section of the word of God than to read it with you. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.